Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas sitting in today. Uh, some great conversations during the past hour with Professor Matt Dickinson about the upcoming political cycle. Uh, um, will it be Trump v. Biden? Will the Houses of Congress flip? Um, who knows? But um, those seem to be the uh, uh, the way that the stars are aligning at this point. But as we know, it's a long time until uh, November of, of 24. And we chatted in the last half hour with Alex Farrell, the state's new housing commissioner. Uh, great uh, insights from Alex uh, about um, uh, the challenges that many working families and others are facing, the need to develop more units, both uh, rental and and uh, ownership around the state, uh, the, the important fact that we can preserve the natural beauty of Vermont while still providing more housing opportunities. Uh, we frankly have no choice if we're going to grow the population and uh, uh, provide affordable places for employees and their families to live. So uh, let's hope that our legislators understand that, get on board, and uh, provide some regulatory relief and um, and some opportunities for uh, for more Vermonters to get ahead. But this uh, half hour, we're honored to be joined by Paul Dame, the Republican state chairman in, in Vermont. And, uh, Paul, I know you've been on uh, the show many times in the past, but I'm not sure I've had the privilege, so uh, welcome aboard. Well, thank you so much for, for having me, Governor. I appreciate it. Well, I think it's important to chat about the state of the GOP. Uh, a lot of people want to uh, pull a white sheet over it in, in Vermont, of course, and and there's no question that uh, uh, the era of the um, 109 consecutive years of Republican governors is uh, uh, probably not going to be repeated anytime soon. But um, but um, it's important to have a, a vibrant two-party system in order to uh, provide opportunities for public discourse and the competition of ideas. And so I think it's really critical that we we have a strong Republican Party in Vermont. So how would you how would you assess its state today? Yeah, I think well, uh, you know, uh, we've got to start with sort of the the obvious. Uh, the results of the last election uh, were you know put Republicans at least on the uh, in the Vermont legislature at our weakest point um, at least in in a long while, uh, if not uh, since the birth of the Republican Party. I think we're down to thirty seven. Uh, House members and seven senators. Uh, so, um, you know, so I think that's, uh, you know, part of the issue there uh, was uh, just recruiting. Uh, you know, I, I came on at late two years ago, late in 21, and then we had a late census. Uh, the maps were adjusted late. And so there were just a lot of seats that just went completely uh, uncontested. And so, uh, we've been working uh, much earlier this time around, even at our uh, state convention that we had uh, back on the 18th. We had uh, teams from uh, counties around the state working together, uh, laying out a new process uh, by which we are going to be a little bit more intentional about recruiting and try to fill some of those seats. And now we, we know what the map's going to look like. That's not going to change for us six weeks before the filing deadline. So I'm optimistic that despite, you know, kind of starting behind the, the line of scrimmage compared to where we've been in previous years, that uh, we're, we're on track to, to make some progress uh, in this next election. 
Well, recruiting has always been a challenge. I can certainly attest, uh, and I understand why, because there are some states where the legislative session is much shorter, even very big states. Uh, but in Vermont, it begins in January and goes as long as the legislators want to, which is increasingly into the spring. And and um, that's quite an imposition on a lot of folks who have a job or a profession or family obligation. So it does make it tougher, doesn't it? It does, and I think that's one of the things that that we have certain that Republicans have certainly been advocating for having a a shorter and a more predictable session. Um, it, it's one thing if you know that all right, you know we're we're not getting out till May fifteenth, but sometimes it's the twenty fourth. Sometimes we're in there till June, uh, so it's really hard for anyone who has sort of a, a regular uh, you know W two. Uh, employee job to go to their employer and say, I- I'm going to take somewhere around <laughs> around four to six months off. Um, are you okay with that? Uh, that's a tough sell. So it's one of the reasons that the legislature and, uh, you know, the, the, the composition of the legislature is reflective of jobs that can handle that very unique kind of, um, uh, you know those unique parameters. I think on the on the Democrat side, they have a number of uh, people who are either you know, retired state workers, retired teachers, uh, professors who can sort of take the spring semester off or take a lightened load. Um, they also have a number of people who are uh, working <clears throat> full time for agencies that receive significant state funding. So their boss is more than happy to have them uh, in the legislature. Uh, because they're getting six, seven figures uh, from the state. Uh, on the Republican side, you know, we've got more, uh, again, retired uh, people and uh, folks who are self-employed, sometimes working seasonal businesses like landscaping or owning a general store or, or have some kind of hours and flexibility that, that make it difficult. And so that certainly narrows the field of uh, of potential candidates that we have. Uh, and, and it's the kind of thing that, as I've talked to our existing legislators and uh, and perspective, if if we had a shorter session, maybe three months, uh, it's something that that more people would be able to participate in. I think we get a broader uh, section of of the community being able to participate in that while maintaining that important aspect of a citizen legislature that that they're primarily uh, out there, you know, working in the real world, and the legislature is not a career for them, but a sort of a, a service opportunity. Well, I agree completely, Paul. I, I remember this past year when the legislature voted itself a, an outrageous uh, pay raise, uh, just a huge mm-hmm. package of pay and benefits uh, that would have embarrassed me if I were a legislator to support it. And fortunately, Governor Scott uh, uh, exercised his veto and stopped it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've talked with potential candidates through the years, uh, it's really not the pay that's the issue. It's the time commitment, as we've been discussing. Yeah. And back in uh, the, the dark ages when I was in the legislature, uh, the, the norm was uh, to go through the third week of April in the uh, first year, the odd year of the session, and the first week in April on the even year. And as you suggested, it was uh, relatively predictable. It wasn't perfect, but it was mm-hmm. pretty close. Uh, but now uh, it just goes on and on forever. So I uh, wish you well in encouraging more people to get involved. And, and I guess the, the pitch to them is, tell me if I'm wrong, that well, I realize it's an inconvenience, uh, sir or ma'am, but uh, what they do there has an awful lot of impact on your business and your life and your family. So, you know, we need you to step up. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's probably never been more true than after the session that, that we just had. You know, we're talking about <clears throat> an unknown uh, tax on home heating fuel, which will affect uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Vermonters uh, and their businesses. Um, and, you know, it's not like people heat their homes and then leave their uh, their commercial spaces, uh, you know, unheated. It, it's it's going to affect um, the bottom line on a lot of businesses. And on top of that, we've seen a rise in a 20% increase in DMV fees, even though the cost of running the DMV has not increased uh, by that amount. Uh, we, we've also seen, uh, you know, more pressure on the education fund. So property taxes, uh, you know, are likely to go up. So we, we may have just run into one of the most expensive sessions we've had, and, and businesses are now going to be facing uh, this new payroll tax uh, as as well for the first time. So, uh, you know, it's very much the case that even if you're not concerned with what happens in Montpelier, uh, Montpelier is very concerned. Uh, with what you're doing uh, in your business, and uh, you know we've got a good, strong governor uh, right now who is who's able to to help and support a Republican caucus. When I served in the legislature in uh, 2015 and 2016, uh, you know we were still in uh, in that super minority status, but we didn't even have a governor to to back and support. So I think it's it's a better time now for folks to run and to serve uh, to support the governor, certainly than uh, than when I was. Uh, serving uh, almost 10 years ago. So there's still great opportunities. And there's a lot of seats that um, that we think are um, are prime for pickup as, as people become more concerned with, you know, the rising cost of just living in Vermont and uh, public safety has become something that never used to be discussed. And now it's it seems like it's in the news every every week. And those are issues that voters trust Republicans on and Democrats have really dropped the ball uh, for the 20 years that they've they've been in power. Yeah, and it has an economic impact, too, doesn't it? I, I hear more and more people mm-hmm. saying, I'm not going to go to downtown Burlington now. It's not safe. So, um, and, and we see retailers bailing and moving to suburban spots. So it, it's, it's a serious mm-hmm. problem. We, we're chatting with Paul Dame, the Republican state chairman. Uh, and you mentioned that the fact that we have a, a great Republican governor now, uh, Phil Scott, uh, doing an outstanding job, very popular. Um, uh, re-elected overwhelmingly a couple of times. So the big question is, is he, is he going to run for a fifth term? Well, you know, I think that's, that's still, uh, still up in the air. I haven't heard <coughs> any, uh, announcements, uh, from him, but, uh, I think everything that I've seen, he's been incredibly devoted to his position. And I think he's, he has the same struggle that many of our, our Republicans do. You know, he, uh, knows that he can provide a lot of value uh, in the private sector. Uh, he, he, he mostly wants to be left alone, and he's, he made a comment about driving his race car. So that that poll, that his his personal life would be a lot better if he wasn't uh, governor of Vermont. But I think just like many of our other Republicans, Governor Scott feels that duty and the responsibility, and recognizes that Vermonters want and need him. Uh, to serve another term, uh, especially with all the flooding that just happened and some of the cleanup that will uh, result in that. I think uh, I think there's going to be a strong case for the governor to, to stay on and uh, and to finish the work that uh, that he started. So we're certainly uh, optimistic that uh, that he's uh, at least considering running again. And I'm sure when he's ready to make that announcement, he will. And to provide some balance, right? As you mentioned, the mm-hmm. legislature has super majorities that are 
um, substantial and uh, occasionally out of control. So it's good to have someone with a uh, who can provide uh, at least some degree of a, of a stopgap there. Well, Paul, we have and to... he's overwhelmingly popular. You know, it's it's one thing if if you're uh, outgunned by by a legislature two to one, and you know you're you're at, at forty percent uh, in in approval ratings. Um, but there's been a clear mandate uh, that Vermonters want Governor Scott. They like his leadership style. And I think the pressure is really on the legislature to get on board. <laughs> I don't think the legislature has an 80-something uh, percent approval rating. <laughs> and so one of two things needs to happen. We either need uh, the, the progressive Democrat coalition uh, to, to get on board and follow the leadership of Governor Scott, or we're going to need to elect new people, uh, Republicans especially, that are going to support the governor and all the efforts that he's been been advancing. Before the break, we were chatting about Governor Scott and uh, the outstanding leadership that he's providing to the state. And at 11 o'clock this morning, he's having his weekly press conference. It'll be carried live here on WDEV. So we encourage all our listeners to, to stay tuned. But um, at some point, he'll want to move on after 20 terms or so, <laughs> right? <laughs> and... Um, the question is, who then? So there's always been talk about the fact that Republicans don't have much of a bench. And, and what, what do you say to that at this point? Well, yeah, I, th- I think part of the, the reason for that is um, is most of the Republicans that I talk to that are serving in our legislature uh, don't really see politics as, as a career. They're, they're not in the legislature so that they can step up to some statewide office and, and run for governor or senate. They, they're, they're serving because they care about their community. Uh, they care about the way things are being run in, in Vermont. And, and they're mostly there to, uh, to take care of, of the, um, you know, the people in their local towns. Uh, and so I don't have a lot of legislators who are, you know, thinking about higher office. They're, they're pretty content with where they are. Uh, they, they like, um, you know, being uh, a citizen. And, uh, and so I think that's, uh, that's one of the, Sort of the challenges that we've we've run into is we have some phenomenal legislators that I would love to see run for for higher office um, that could be incredibly competent people that have great reputations even among the Democrats uh, and they're they're just content uh, you know with uh, with their family and and their work life the way that it is so that's that's been one of the uh, the challenges we've had in terms of sort of growing our party, our party from, from the bottom up is uh, many people serve in the legislature, sometimes serve, uh, you know, multiple terms, five, six, seven terms, um, and, and just decide to, to retire rather than uh, representing uh, the state and, and the party at, at a higher level. So I think that's, uh, it's, mo- it's been a, more of, a, of an ambition uh, issue rather than a competency issue. We've, like I said, we've got some great people, um, but a lot of Republicans find other ways to serve their community going back into the private sector where they feel like they can be they can be more productive in some cases. Well, interestingly, even though the governorship was seen as a temporary assignment, uh, the, there was a longstanding tradition in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, where governors only served two years by tradition and then moved on. So it wasn't that uh, long a commitment or, as you say, a career um, that has become uh, more recently. But uh, we've we got other statewide elected offices, uh, and it's important for the party to field a a team um, of candidates there too, um, but that's similarly tough, I suppose. 
Yes. Uh, well, it's it's a, and the statewide race is, is a big job too. Um, it's uh, it really requires a, a deeper level of uh, of commitment um, to to make that happen, and uh, and you know a whole year of your life really traveling all over the state, and so uh, it's it's been a challenge for for many people who are pretty pretty content uh, with with uh, with their current lot in life and. And um, but but it's but it's critically important because we uh, you know, Republicans really um, have lost that opportunity to be a good stepping stone for the governorship, which uh, which is absolutely critical without having uh, some of these other statewide offices being more competitive. So that's something I've been taking a look at well, uh, as well as uh, looking at trying to build the network of, uh, that we need to have competent people with experience in those fields running for some of those positions. And, you know, a number of other states, kind of the auditor and the treasurer aren't an elected uh, position. They kind of um, come up uh, sort of through through the ranks on their own. It's not really as political um, in, in some other states. And so uh, it's important that we've got to start building that network of people that are in the finance, uh, uh, you know, that have a finance background for those auditor, uh, you know, and, and treasurer positions. Um, so that's something that we're uh, – our state committee is, is focused on. We recognize that's been a weak point uh, in the past. And uh, and it really gives if if we can find those kinds of high quality candidates at the top of the ticket, it helps uh, establish the rest of our of our slate for legislators uh, in both the House and the Senate. Uh, so that's that is a focus that uh, that we have moving into 2024 as well. Well, it is important. I held two of those other offices myself, as you know, so it, it can be a uh, a source of um, potential candidates for higher office. We're chatting with Paul Dame, Republican State Chairman. And, Paul, uh, you made an allusion to the gathering that you had uh, within the last couple of weeks. But you had some uh, pretty big-name speakers at a Republican event in Vermont, didn't you? Yeah. I, I, I don't know the last time we've had that many nationally recognized uh, people in Vermont for a Republican event. You know, we start out with breakfast with uh, Grover Norquist, who is the uh, the president of Americans for Tax Reform, um, and uh, he had a a great uh, sort of encouraging uh, speech for folks to get uh, get our morning uh, started off there, uh, and uh, and 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 recognize that even in states where um, you know in blue states like Vermont where uh, we don't have control, uh, having other other red states like New Hampshire puts pressure on some of uh, some of these states like Vermont and New York uh, to not raise taxes because our neighbors uh, we become less competitive with our neighbors. So even in those cases where we don't we aren't advancing the tax policy that maybe we'd like to see in Vermont, when it's happening in neighboring states, um, there, there's still a positive effect on on Vermont taxpayers. And uh, what I thought was probably the best. Uh, uh, the best speaker we had was during lunch. We had Georgia State Representative uh, Misha Mayner come. She had uh, been elected as a Democrat to the state legislature in Georgia. And uh, just after serving uh, her first term, realized very quickly that the issues that were most important to her constituents, public safety and improving the quality of education, uh, the Democrats were really fighting her um, within her own party and anything that she wanted to get done, she had to go work with Republicans to to make improvements in those areas. And so earlier this year, uh, Misha became one uh, of a series of state elected Democrats uh, 
who uh, left their party and joined the Republicans. Uh, we've seen similar things happening in uh, North Carolina, uh, West Virginia, Louisiana, uh, even a couple years ago in, uh, in New Jersey. We had a congressman, uh, Jeff uh, Van Drew, uh, got elected as a Democrat, uh, changed parties, and, and he was reelected as a Republican. And, uh, and so it was great to hear from her a little bit about her experience that she had just kind of grown up as a Democrat uh, and not really talked about policy. It had sort of been just something that everyone assumed. And then when she got into the legislature and started dealing with actual policy issues, realized, gosh, you know, I think I'm 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 with the Republicans more than I am with the Democrats. So that was that was a really exciting um, uh, speech. And, and uh, we're working on getting the tapes from those uh, up uh, on our on our website shortly. And then our last two speakers were uh, Scott Pressler, who has been an advocate and uh, a volunteer for Republican uh, Republican campaigns all over the country. He's been uh, focused on voter registration and really encouraging Republicans to leave behind some of the, um, you know, some of the concerns about early voting and and recognizing that we're losing races because we don't get people to the, the polls uh, early, we 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 aren't as competitive on voting uh, absentee or voting early as we should be. And then uh, we close the night out with former uh, U.S. Senator Scott Brown, who also uh, served as ambassador to New Zealand. Folks may remember him as the uh, the only Republican to get elected to the U.S. Senate for Massachusetts in the past 50 years when uh, Ted Kennedy uh, passed away and created a, a vacancy. So we had a very a very full day, and and uh, everybody that uh, that I talked to was really excited. I had one woman who came said, my, my husband dragged me here. I didn't want to come, but I'm really glad I came. And so it was a really good rallying point for uh, for Republicans. We also had a series of policy panels where we talked about what Republicans are trying to do in the state legislature. So we talked about public safety, education, health care, housing, um, all those issues of what Republicans would do if we were to have a majority, if we had control of some of those committees. Well, uh, what a what a great uh, day, a great lineup, and some inspiring speakers, and uh, maybe there will be a, uh, some influence on Vermont Democrats and others to to take a look at the Republican Party too. We'll we'll see. We, we've only got a minute left, uh, Paul. Um, I suppose we have to talk about the 800-pound gorilla, um, the mm-hmm. current uh, or front runner for the Republican presidential nomination is. Not uh, the most popular guy in Vermont. What what do you see happening there this next cycle? You know, I, I think that is a situation that is in, in constant flux. I mean, a year ago after the midterms, uh, there was a great amount of um, disapproval for Trump and really feeling like uh, Trump and some of his endorsements were to blame for Republicans losing the Senate and, and a number of other cases. And I think that the more I listen to people, there's a number of folks who voted for Trump twice. But then after January 6th and and a lot of his claims about the election, which here almost four four years later are still unproven, um, they're ready to move on. And we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, Paul. But thanks so much for your time today. I hope we can chat again. Paul Dame, Republican State Chairman. This is Jim Douglas. We'll be right back. Welcome back.
back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas sitting in today. Thanks for being with us. We've had some great conversations already this morning uh, with uh, Professor Matt Dickinson at Middlebury College about the upcoming election cycle with Alex Farrell, the Vermont State Housing Commissioner, about the challenge of finding enough affordable housing for the people of our state and also addressing the homelessness crisis. And we chatted with Paul Dame, the state Republican chairman, about the uh, state of the GOP in the Green Mountain State that uh, uh, certainly continues to face some uh, some challenges, but Paul remains optimistic. And a programming note, uh, at 11 o'clock this morning, uh, Governor Phil Scott will have his weekly press conference. It will be carried live here on WDEV, uh, so be sure to stay tuned uh, for that. We understand he'll be discussing some additional steps uh, in terms of the recovery from the summer flooding and uh, what assistance is available to the uh, people of, uh, of central Vermont. For now, though, we're honored to be joined by uh, Dr. Bill Beach. Uh, Bill has a long, distinguished career in uh, uh, public service in the federal government. We won't go into that uh, now, but maybe another time, Bill. Uh, but, but now he's uh, signed on as a fellow at the Coolidge Foundation, the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. And I always disclose to our listeners that I have the privilege of serving on the board of that foundation. It's a great privilege and honor to, uh, to help uh, commemorate the life and legacy of a native Vermonter who uh, uh, made such a difference uh, a century ago to, to the United States of America. But uh, Bill Beach, welcome to WDEV. Real privilege to be on. I'm a little bit daunted by the guests that you've had on before me, so I, I hope I won't let you down. Oh, well, uh, great to have you, Bill. Uh, uh, you shouldn't be. Those are all local yokels uh, whom we're, we're honored to have here from, from time to time. Uh, we had uh, we had quite a dumping of snow here in central Vermont the night before last, oh. a foot or so. So I guess, uh, as we uh, often say, summer is over. Uh, but um, but uh, something else that's almost over is the uh, centennial year of President Coolidge's inauguration. Yeah. And we might just um, uh, recap some of the activities that we've been having uh, on behalf of the foundation during the past um, 10 or 11 months. Right. Uh, well, uh, was, uh, 100 years ago uh, this year that President Coolidge took the oath of office in the dining room of his family home in Plymouth, Plymouth Notch. Uh, and so to celebrate that centennial, the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and so many other groups uh, have been putting on events in Vermont and elsewhere you know, to draw attention to the presidency, uh, this very important presidency. But also I think the presidency is fine and the policies he had are just amazing, particularly budget and debt. But really, the values of Calvin Coolidge, which are so sorely needed today, I think, in so many aspects of um, government and personal life. So we did a number of things during the year. But some of the highlights, uh, last, I believe it was last March uh, or late February, we held a very big conference at the Library of Congress here in Washington, D.C., to talk about aspects of the Coolidge presidency, the times of President Coolidge. Uh, We even had a lecture by a descendant of uh, Warren G. Harding, which was so interesting. I think it's really interesting to hear this physician talk about uh, his uh, grandfather. And then during the summer, uh, in early August, right about the time that the the swearing-in by uh, the Justice of the Peace, uh, Colonel Coolidge, of his son, we held a big event in Plymouth Notch. You were there. Uh, there were so many other wonderful people there. 
we had a big dinner. We had a, a, just an amazing swearing in of new citizens uh, in, in for the United States. These were all uh, Vermonters. Um, and then we had a reconstruction twice. We did twice uh, of the swearing in of Calvin Coolidge. The first time we did it was at 2.47 a.m. when it actually occurred. But um, we had about 200 people there, Governor. Uh, but we really wanted more people to see us. So at 2.47 p.m., we re- uh, reconstructed that whole event. And so um, then we've been holding uh, events for students here in Washington, D.C. Um, we've launched a new magazine called the Coolidge Review. This uh, this year, it was you know very time- timely in the centennial year. So in so many ways, we're trying to draw attention, as I said, not only to the policies of uh, Calvin Coolidge, which were very important, but what we could really say the Harding Coolidge presidency years, but to the uh, personal values that made him such a unique and distinguished person. We're chatting with Bill Beach from the Coolidge Foundation. It has indeed been an exciting centennial year. And um, like you, I was surprised that a couple hundred people showed up at 2.47 in the morning <laughs> at Plymouth Notch to witness that. But, you know, uh, when, when you think of it, it's, it's, it's history. It's, it's important for, yeah. uh, for people to, to experience. And, um, and I'm glad that they did. I met a, a professor from, a university in Ohio had his young children there, and at first I thought, well, this is child abuse, but then I thought, no, it's, 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 it's something they'll remember. So uh, I'm glad. Well, you know, we also had um, we also had a, a little bit over a hundred what are called Coolidge senators. Uh, these are uh, young men and women, most in high school or early college years, who were the finalists for the annual Calvin Coolidge full scholarship awards. We only get four or five of those away a year. So these were the hundred finalists and, um, and we had lectures and we had program for them all throughout this entire period. Many of those showed up not only for 2:47 AM, but also going back at 2:47 PM. I remember seeing some pretty sleepy eyed <laughs> teenagers, uh, but, uh, you know, it was it was amazing for them, and they and uh, you know, it was, it was uh, for, for for someone who's seventeen or so, it's eye opening. These are all new experiences. These are these are so dislodging from the world that they live in, which I think there's good reason why they should be cynical, and to see such positive values and messages um, among uh, uh, delivered to people who in ten years will be leading important institutions and doing important things uh, as they as they mature into full adults. Uh, that, to me, was one of the real highlights of that early August event. Well, I agree, uh, Bill, completely. It's always impressive to see uh, uh, such talent among uh, young yeah. Americans, and uh, we're delighted to be able to bring them to Plymouth Notch or Washington or wherever the case may be. We're chatting with uh, Bill Beach from the Coolidge Foundation and uh, recapping the centennial year of the Coolidge presidency in 1923. Uh, it's certainly been an exciting time for all of us who are uh, aficionados of number 30, as we call him. Um, but as you said, uh, it's it's one thing to celebrate the centennial. It's another to continue to preserve his his legacy, especially his values. And and I know you're working on a big uh, project that's going to uh, going to happen early next year. So tell us about that. Well, yes, uh, we were so happy with the conference that we had uh, last year. In um, well, it was earlier this this year, what wasn't it? Um, that we decided to 
uh, hold a, uh, a follow-on conference. This will be more topical. So on March the 7th, again at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., uh, in uh, one of their buildings, it's called the Madison Building, if you're in town and you'd like to attend, certainly you can probably get a, a ticket. We will be talking about one of the most pressing issues in front of our body politic today, and that is um, how do we think about the federal debt? How do we understand um, how to ad- adjust it, to change it, to modify it? We have so many political views, great spectrum. Calvin Cooley's Presidential Foundation is not a partisan group, but it can lead to a discussion on this topic because of the amazing things that President Cooley's did to um, rein in spending and reduce debt following World War One, when public debt got to be very high. And we had inflation, we had, of course, we had a pandemic, I and mean, there's so many parallels to our own time. So the conference will really look at the history of public debt from the founding of the Republic uh, through the early national period, through the middle of the ni- 19th century to the end of the 19th century, through the Coolidge years, uh, the Harding Coolidge years, uh, up to the present. We have distinguished uh, scholars, uh, politicians, um, individuals who have made their careers, uh, successful careers in the private sector, who will be on panels to discuss primarily the history, and then at the very end of the conference, what are some of the solutions based on that history? What are some of the approaches we could take to rein in um, the spending? And I don't think anyone, Republican or Democrat, disputes the fact that with $34 trillion in total federal debt, you really really need to find a solution to slow it down. Uh, so, uh, so that's happening on March the 7th. We're almost ready for that conference. We've almost got all the panels filled out. Um, we'll have, uh, again, the uh, senators will, will be there. We'll have 100 or so students and about 250 people are, can be accommodated in that uh, meeting space. So we're very excited about that. Another thing we're excited about, the Governor, is the launching of our uh, Coolidge Review, which is a new magazine, um, and we're beginning to see some of the early, you know, uh, shape that it's going to take. I think this is going to have a huge effect on uh, thinking in this country, um, on uh, engendering a discussion of how value-based politics can be um, can, can be so fruitful. Uh, a, a normalizing debate, which is a you know, is one of the things that President Coolidge was so in favor of, his favor of public spirited debate, but one in which was both sides respected the right of the other to hold their opinions. All these things, that, and so we're launching that as one of the products of the centennial year. But uh, I think it's going to have a, a long term impact uh, on uh, thinking and discussion in this country. Well, it's great to hear. Uh, we're chatting with Bill Beach from the Coolidge Foundation about a uh, forthcoming conference, a new publication, and, and a focus on uh, public debt, which, uh, as you suggested, Bill, uh, everybody should agree is out of control. And, frankly, both parties have been complicit uh, in uh, one time or another in racking up that huge debt. And uh, I think more Americans need to understand its implication for our kids and grandkids. So uh, congratulations on, on making that happen. We're chatting with Bill Beach uh, uh, from the Coolidge Foundation. We've talked about the uh, 
uh, centennial celebration of President Coolidge's uh, first inauguration, about the upcoming um, um, program at the Library of Congress that the foundation is hosting this coming March, about a new publication called the Coolidge Review. And, uh, Bill, I want to cycle back to, to a point you made uh, a few minutes ago, and that is that uh, we, we study uh, President Coolidge's uh, life and and uh, policies and administration and priorities, but but the values that he projected and held dear are really critical for uh, for people, especially young people, to to learn about. Talk a little about Coolidge values and and why they're so important. Well, yes. Uh, let me just uh, lay it out to what I where where I'm coming from on that. On that. I've been in Washington and in government, in and out of government for. 40 years or so. And I am struck now that I think back on that time, how much more important the values are in interpersonal relations and in getting things done than the policies. And that, that, that may seem strange because we always have policy debates, but in the end, if we decide to, on a course of action um, or we decide to discuss something, it's between people, it's between human beings, uh, not artificially intelligent machines. Uh, and they, they have to trust each other and they have to know that the person is motivated by a set of values which will be constructive and that they can work with. So when we think about uh, values, I think we could probably not do better than to think about the way in which Calvin Coolidge um, conducted his life. I mean, he was a, a flawed person like we all are, but he had a, a view of improving himself, of always dealing as much as possibly could with with you know, with honesty, honest approaches, uh, full information, respecting others in in, in debate, uh, being relentless with respect to the pursuit of goals, but that relentlessness would be bounded by certain virtues that would make sure that people weren't hurt along along the way. So those are important, and and you, you people need to study them in order to absorb them, internalize them. I, I think Coolidge is going to have. Uh, an enormous re- re- revival. It, it's already started. You can see the number of people who now come to the foundation without any knowledge of the, uh, well, let me just say the policies, but are motivated by the, to uh, affiliate with the foundation as programs because of their, their newfound admiration for Coolidge. Amity Schlaes, the chairman of the board, has done a lot for that because of her writing on Coolidge, most importantly, her her award-winning uh, New York Times best-selling book, uh, The Biography of Calvin Coolidge. But then others are simply discovering him. So he'll rise in the pantheon of presidents where he's from where he is right now, which is kind of in the, in the, in the, in the middle to, I think, pretty high. And um, he'll be there because of what he has evinced. Uh, Governor, this is a personal view. I don't know if you share this, but I am struck now by uh, the absence of those values, you know, certainly here in Washington, not entirely. There are many good men and women who are just, as we have characterized, trustworthy and so forth, but they're in the minority. Um, we need to get back to the point where they're in the majority in order to have better government, better policies, uh, a more public-spirited, publicly-minded uh, government that has the interests of the long-term the long of the people. Well, that it's supposed to serve. 
I, I agree completely, Bill, and uh, uh, Coolidge is a great exemplar of that. I, I recall um, uh, early in his political career, he um, eschewed um, uh, negative campaigning. Um, he, right. he, you know, he didn't think it worked, for one thing, and he didn't think it, think it was appropriate. Uh, so no. uh, imagine today if uh, <laughs> people only talked about what they wanted to do rather than what was wrong with no. their opponents. We'd be all relieved. I, I can tell you there's so many people who are so – saddened and exhausted by negative politics that they really would like to see a chapter, a new chapter in American politics. Well, we can always uh, we can always hope. But we started uh, chatting about one of Coolidge's, um, I guess it's a value as well as a policy, and that's uh, his commitment to fiscal restraint and responsibility. Uh, yes. uh, uh, the, and you were you correctly pointed out that uh, we really should talk about the entire eight year span of the Harding and Coolidge years uh, in terms of personal <clears throat> conduct and values uh, they might have been quite different but but their but their fiscal policies were quite consistent and um, mm-hmm. the tax rate uh, federal income tax rate came down appreciably federal spending declined and and most importantly so did the federal debt so uh, I, yeah. I think it's great that that's uh, going to be the focus of the conference in March because uh, heaven knows we need it yeah, and, and we we have a lot to learn from that I mean, people forget that the tax rate coming out of World War One was a top top of seventy seven percent. That there was a, a, over a two thousand percent increase in the federal debt. That, that uh, spending had gone by hundreds of percentages higher than it was prior to the war. Of course, it was a smaller government prior to the war, but even so, this was a big burden on our economy. Uh, it was widely recognized as something that had to be rectified. We had inflation. Uh, we had a pandemic that killed even more people than the COVID-19 did. We had we had all of this sort of uh, wariness of the future of the country. We had big riots, and we were fighting the socialists and the anarchists and bomb throwers. I mean, it was it was a tense time. People just don't study it; they don't know know it. Well, here comes Harding and Coolidge, who um, were really charged with bringing the country to a level of sanity and stability across the board. Harding did a lot of that. Coolidge came in after Harding's sudden death and um, devoted himself to finishing that program. And that program started with the Budget Act 1921 and implementing that in 1923 and bringing spending, bringing the debt down, bringing the debt down, down, not just slowing the growth, but bringing the debt down. Um, which allowed for tax cuts, which produced, we think, a very strong economy in the 1920s, which was always there even after, even during the Depression. The strength was underlying it was still there um, and, uh, of course, came roaring back in the 1950s. So um, just a really important thing for us to study of what he did on the fiscal side because we need those policies in place today. Well, we certainly do. And, uh, Bill, we're, we're about out of time. Uh, uh, it flies uh, here on the radio, uh, <laughs> although it doesn't in Congress. Uh, but uh, I want to make sure our listeners have a uh, have a uh, contact point. So Coolidge, uh, uh, CoolidgeFoundation.org, I think, is the website, right? It, it is. It is, yes. So they can get information. And, and, and it, right. The Coolidge uh, site on the international, on the World Wide Web, has all these program notes that we've been talking about and ways in which uh, 
your listeners can interact with the foundation and get involved in their programs. It's, it's just a great thing to do. Well, it sure is. If you're in Vermont. Well, you bet. You bet. Well, I hope uh, we'll have the chance to, to chat again. Uh, Dr. Bill Beach from the Coolidge Foundation. Uh, best of luck with the conference, the publication, and uh, we'll see you soon. This All is, right. This, Thank you. This is Jim Douglas uh, sitting in on Vermont Viewpoint today. Stay tuned for the governor's press conference, and uh, we'll be talking again sometime, I'm sure. Take care.